0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, the personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 116. It's titled, Why Investors Can't Ignore China. Throughout my investment career, I've learned much from meeting with hedge fund managers and other renowned investors, typically in their offices. I find it valuable to listen to their investment philosophy, their process, and their current views and positioning, although I don't always agree with what they're saying. I just It's helpful just to, to sit down and listen to an investor as they sort of outline their, their view of the world. Now, managing a hedge fund is challenging, It's stressful, it's time-consuming, and ultimately, it can be very humbling. Very few investors or hedge fund managers can do it for more than a decade. Many flame out, they burn out, or they just, it's just (laughs) really, really stressful. And their investors, the underlying investors in the funds, are not very patient. In 2010, I was in New York City. And I met with Brian Kelly, who ran the Asian-focused hedge fund Asian Century Quest. At the time, the fund had approximately $2 billion in assets. And I, I would go during the last years when I worked as an investment professional, I, this right after the financial crisis, each year I, I'd go to New York and I typically would have our team would set up four or five meetings for me with various hedge funds. And I was there just, just to learn, just to listen. Well, at the time, as I mentioned, that Brian Kelly's fund had about two billion dollars in assets, but by early 2014, investors had pulled 95 percent of the firm's assets from the fund. It forced most of their funds to close. They had to shut down their offices, and, and I'm not sure if they're still in business. They might have a small amount of capital that they they still manage. Well, did the fund lose money? Was it? Did it blow up? No it gained 5.5% net of fees in 2013, according to CNBC. But unfortunately, as an Asian-focused hedge fund, the Japanese stock market gained 57% in 2013, and the MSCI All-Country Asian Index rose 14%. And so bull market in the area you focused on, and you only returned 5.5%, it was profitable, Yet investors pulled their money. Now, Brian Kelly, what he got right was he this right around 2013 is when when Japan, I believe, instituted quantitative easing or Abenomics, and and in in many regards, in my conversation with with Kelly, he anticipated those things, but obviously did not anticipate the the degree of rebound. In the Japanese stock market. Kyle Bass, an American hedge fund manager who runs the firm Heyman Capital, said in a recent interview on Real Vision quote, It's easier to maintain a conviction, it's harder to maintain investors. And hedge funds are struggling right now because the returns as a group have not been great. And and it's been easier to make money just investing in the stock market as a bait investor since the the uh, by bait investor just ex- broad exposure to index fund you've, you've you've easily made more money than most hedge funds since the end of the the great financial crisis and so as a result investors are pulling money out of hedge funds and it's and it's a tough time now I miss meeting. With investment managers, when when I when I decided to to leave my investment firm, there there are a number of things I missed. A lot of them I've been able to recreate by starting the podcast, by launching the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, finding a way to teach investors about money and the economy. I've been able to do, and I've been able to not do the things that I didn't no longer want to do, which was to manage money on a day to day basis for institutions and individuals. But well, what I do miss is the network, the, the ability to just to fly to New York and to sit down with a very smart investor and just, just to learn from them and ask them probing questions, and, and that helps me clarify my thinking. Well, this past April, I got an email from, from Raoul Paul, who is a former hedge fund manager. He co-managed a fund called the GLG Global Macro Fund in London. Which, uh, which was for GLG Partners, which is one of the largest hedge fund groups in the world. And he used to be with Goldman Sachs. Well, he retired from managing money in 2004. And in 2014, he launched a firm called Real Vision, he and, and several other founders. And what Real Vision is, it's they, they describe it as the world's only video-on-demand channel for finance, where they say the world's best investors share their ideas. And in, in essence, it's the Netflix of finance. And so I, I got this email from Raul, and he wanted to discuss the potential to sponsor money for the rest of us. And I, I get approached frequently about sponsoring the podcast and, and running ads. And I and I've always declined because I just I would have a hard time being genuine. This is only a 25 to 30 minute show. And I just didn't want to take up two minutes talking about Audible or Stamps.com. And so when I saw the, the email, I was like, I, really don't, I don't really have any interest in doing that. But he wanted to set up a call, and so I set up a call. And I had not heard of Real Vision TV. And, and we, we had a pleasant call, and I just, I wasn't sure it was necessarily something I wanted to do. But I signed up for a seven-day free trial on, on real vision, and you can do it. You don't need a credit card, and I was fascinated because I I was able to watch videos, and it was just like being in the offices of hedge fund managers again and mutual fund managers, and, and what I liked about it is good investors, they play the probabilities. They don't necessarily pound the table and say, it has to happen this way. They're always aware of where they could be wrong, where they have been wrong, and so you get a really balanced perspective as they share their theses, but what could go wrong with their theses? And so there there are mutual fund managers and hedge fund managers. I listen to strategists. One of the, the videos I watched was Ben Hunt, who I've mentioned with Salient Partners that I've mentioned in in earlier episodes. And again, it was just like the manager meeting. So I went ahead and I, I signed up. I paid the full fee. I bought a subscription. And over the past several months, I've been continuing to watch videos. I also agreed to form a partnership with Real Vision TV so that you as listeners and listeners, and money for the rest of us can get 20% off the annual rate. But again, you can try it out for seven days for free. So if you go to realvisiontv.com, Forward slash money can sign up for a free trial, and then if you decide to join, you'll get twenty percent off the annual rate. Or if you find you're just self having gone just to realvisiontv.com dot com, and you decide to purchase, if you put in the discount code money M O N E Y, you'll get twenty percent off the annual rate. Obviously, as a partnership, if you do join, I will get a modest commission. But the main reason I did it because is because Here's a way to, to to share with you compelling content organically as part of the episode, whatever we're we're talking about. And and today's an example of that. Today I want to talk about China. And one of the interviews on Real Vision TV was the interview with Kyle Bass. In 2007, Bass's fund gained 212 percent after he successfully positioned for the U.S. subprime mortgage crisis. I talked about the great financial crisis in episode 97. And, and if you've watched the movie The Big Short, you've also learned how many of those in- investors positioned, if they were patient, and Kyle Bass is, is one of them. So I, I I watched the interview, and I was particularly fascinated because he says he has positioned his fund to profit From the unwinding, what he calls the largest macro imbalance in world history. He said in the interview All my money is where my mouth is. There's one thing that I am as close to 100% certain of than I have ever been. Now, how does Bass, hedge fund manager, develop such certainty? And this gets back to the point how hard it is to be a hedge fund manager. Now, I have to admit, if you're good, and you're a successful hedge fund manager, it's also extremely lucrative. But Bass says, we check and recheck our theses all the time. It's a constant endeavor, 24-7, seven days a week. And that's why many hedge fund managers burn out. So what is Bass so certain about? That debt in China has gotten too big and grown too fast and indiscriminately. As a result, there will be massive write-offs requiring China to recapitalize its banks. So what does it mean to recapitalize the banks? Well, when a bank loses losses gets too large, the bank becomes insolvent. And that obviously harms the depositors and the shareholders. In 2003, China injected $45 billion into the Bank of China and the China Construction Bank in order to recapitalize them and essentially inject equity to offset losses. Bass believes in the current law cycle, it will require the Chinese government to inject two to three trillion dollars to cover losses. And in order to mitigate the negative economic impact of these massive losses, Bass believes the Chinese government and the central bank will take steps that will cause the Chinese yuan to depreciate significantly against other currencies such as the U.S. dollar and the euro. His quote is, they're going to do what is best for China. And what's best for China is to materially devalue their currency. And that's how Bass has structured the hedge fund. When he talks about what he's he's so certain of, you have to actually position for your thesis. And he's positioning his fund. He didn't say exactly how, but he will profit if the Chinese yuan devalues. And there's other hedge funds that have made this same prediction and thesis. Now, it hasn't worked out so well. It's been a very, very difficult two years for Bass's fund. And he says it's not going to be Armageddon. That China is going to have a loss cycle, that they'll recap the banks, their currency will depreciate pretty materially, it will export deflation to the world one last time, and why is that? Because as if the Chinese yuan is devalued, then Chinese goods will become cheaper for essentially U.S. residents in the U.S. or residents euros. So the goods will be cheaper; they'll import more. Cheaper goods means lower prices, potentially deflation. So it says. So he says it will export deflation to the world one last time. And if you have any money left, it will be the best time in the world to invest. It will be the greatest time ever to invest in Asia. One reason I like Kyle Bass's approach is he's not—he's not overly bearish. He's, it is a very balanced approach. He's—he is what he says long technology and innovation, but where he's short or concerned is sort of some of these world structures that have gone essentially out of balance. And hedge fund managers as a rule, they don't position for Armageddon because when you invest, your timing might not be right. And it might take a while for your thesis to work out. And so you're always looking for what could go wrong and how how much could your positions move against you? And as I said, Bass's timing has been off. He admits his fund has had quote two years of bad performance. Back in 2010, when I was meeting with Brian Kelly, who ran the Asian Focus Hedge Fund, one of the things he said that I remember distinctly, he said investors forget that China is a communist country and it owns the banks. And what he implied is that China could assist the banks in rolling over the bad loans for an indefinite amount of time. And that's where investing can get so difficult, particularly when you're a hedge fund. Because this was six years ago, there was concern about bad debts in China. And, and it's, it, we've not seen the, the banking crisis that many have predicted. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com david. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Now, another strategist that I have followed and I mentioned in in early episodes is Michael Pettis, P-E-T-T-I-S. He is a Beijing-based economic and investment strategist. And he also believes there is a serious bad debt situation in China. He wrote in a recent blog post, and I'll link to it in the show notes. Or if you're a member of my Insider's Guide, I emailed you the, the link to this post. I've also linked to uh, RealVision.tv or Real TV in there. And if you're not a member of my Insider's Guide, please sign up. It's free. You, if you're a US based investor, you can text the word Insider to the number 44222, and that'll get you signed up, or you can just go to MoneyForTheRespice.net. You, you get valuable content when you do that, and including a summary article of each week's episode. It just makes it easier for you. So, Michael Pettit, in this blog post, wrote, As far as I can tell, there is not a single case in modern history in which the reforming country was able to grow its way out of its debt burden. Instead, the debt burden has always increased until the country either engineers or is forced to explicit or implicit, into explicit or implicit debt forgiveness. Now, Michael Pettis is talking about private sector debt, and we're going to exclude for another another day the topic of public debt. In fact, there was a recent episode that just in the last six or seven, I don't remember the number, it's on should, how worried should you be about the national debt. That's public debt. Private debt is where there is a concern, and and Pettis believes that there, there is a serious debt situation in China. But where he differs is he doesn't believe China will have a banking collapse. He wrote, quote, while it's possible and the risk of it happening should not be dismissed out of hand, I do not think that China is likely to have a banking collapse any more than Japan in the late 1980s and early 90s was ever likely to have a banking collapse. This doesn't mean, however, that China's debt burden is irrelevant. Similar to China's current situation, in the 1980s, Japan experienced a huge run-up in debt that spurred economic growth and stock market and real estate bubbles. Recall what debt is. Debt is accelerating future spending into the present. So you, you, you bring forward the spending. We talked about money as a time machine a few episodes ago, and that's what debt is. And so the debt needs to be invested in productive opportunities in order to earn a rate of return that will allow the debt to be paid back. But too much debt can also push assets or money into assets and cause them to expand, such as a, a housing bubble or a real estate bubble. So that's what happened in the 1980s with Japan. Yet Japan did not have a financial crisis or banking collapse. In many ways, though, what happened to Japan and what they've experienced since 1990 was much worse. They've had over two decades of subpar economic growth as businesses and households have paid down the debt. During the 1980s, Japan's private non-financial debt as a percent of its economic output As measured by gross domestic product, it climbed from approximately 140% of GDP to over 210%. And after 25 years of deleverage, Japan's non-financial debt to GDP is now 167%. China's debt burden has grown even faster. In 2006, right before the Great Financial Crisis, China's non-financial debt to GDP was approximately 120%. It's now over 210%, the same level where Japan's debt burden peaked. Just for comparison, the U.S.'s private non-financial debt to GDP is at 150%, and it peaked at 170% in 2009, and the U.S. has also been going through a period of deleveraging. So China... With debt, private debt to GDP at 210%, does that mean China has reached its maximum debt capacity? Michael Pettis points out that debt capacity limits are reached when debt can no longer grow fast enough to roll over bad debt. So in the past year... China's private sector debt increased 16%. It's been growing at about 16% per year for the last four or five years. So the debt growth has to be fast enough in order to roll over bad debt. So the new debt is used to roll over the bad debt. And it's also used to cover new bad debts. And that's been one of the challenges with China. Some of the, the, the investments have, haven't worked out so far. So you're going to have new bad debts coming on. Plus, you have to have investments in new projects that actually work out, that will allow the economy to expand, that re- that earn a rate of return, that allow the debt to be paid off in interest. And so if you get to the point where you have so much bad debt and so much new bad debt piling on, and there aren't as many investment opportunities because of, of overinvestment in the past, that's when a country can reach its maximum debt capacity. And that. Can have some negative consequence on the economy because then if if the economy has been growing because of debt, expansion, and investment, and suddenly that stops, then then that then that leads to a, a potential slowdown and potentially even negative GDP growth or a contraction. And it certainly leads up to the piling up uh, of bad debts. And it's a particular concern in China because the banks you know here, many investors, they, they put their money in the bank, and, and sometimes they buy a CD. But the CD is guaranteed by the bank? and I, I, I suppose not many I don't know how many people still invest in CDs with rates so low. But in China, there are wealth management products that the Chinese bank sell to ordinary citizens. And only about, according to Fitch, only about 74% of these are guaranteed, or, or 74% aren't guaranteed by the bank. So if, if these wealth management products go belly up, then the investors lose. Now, they typically, these are yield-oriented products with six-month terms, and it's a huge business. Fitch estimates there are 23.5 trillion yuan, or $3.6 trillion worth of, Wealth management products outstanding at the end of 2015. And each year, there was about 3,500 new ones offered each week. Now, the rates have been coming down. So at the end of 2015, these wealth management products were yielding 4.68%. And that's down from about 5% in 2014. Here's the challenge. These things are highly levered. And it's unclear what the banks are doing to generate the yield, but it it we can safely assume that they have corporate bonds corporate debt in there that in a leveraged position and if defaults start to climb up and china gets to its maximum debt capacity then you then this debt has to be restructured and potentially you have a debt to equity swap and these wealth managing products could collapse Due to the high amount of leverage. Now this happened, one of them collapsed in 2012 and the Chinese took to the streets and complained and the bank got so much bad publicity, they they refunded the money. But that's an issue. So when you reach maximum debt capacity, there are these consequences and one will be wealth management products. In episode 17 of Money for the Rest of Us, Why China Matters to your pocketbook, we took a deep dive in China and we talked about how their need to rebalance their economy, but being so focused on investment and making it more based on, on essentially consumer purchases and households. Just In the U.S., households drive 70% of the economy. In China, it is, it's well under 50%. And and Pettis' view is a way to do that is you need wealth transferred to the household sector. And here's what he says. Clearly, the more wealth that is transferred to the household sector or the more Beijing is willing to allow the economy to slow, the more stable is China's economic adjustment and the less painful economically over the long term. Greater transfers and slower growth, however, both come at the expense of the vested interests who oppose reforms. And so it is politics, more than economic logic, that will determine the success of China's rebalancing strategy. And and China's economy is slowing. It's it's not slowing as much as Pettis thinks it will, it will slow, as well as Bass. But it – and there's, there's political interest. And so when we talk about why we can't ignore China – Bass says it's the world's second largest economy. So you better be focused on it because in the next two years, this is happening. And if you want to pretend it's not going to happen, you're going to do poorly somewhere in your portfolio and your life. If you accept the fact that it is going to happen, you should be thoughtful about how you structure your portfolio around that. And so the question is, what, what do we do in terms of we, we have this massive debt built up in China It clearly is going to impact the Chinese economy at some point. The timing is uncertain. The timing of whether they've reached maximum debt capacity. And we're not even sure what the impact will be on on U.S. investors or European investors or the global stock market. Bass subtly states in the interview, he doesn't see it as an equity positive event. Yet he's not forecasting a crash. And he's not even sure if U.S. stocks will go up or down because as if deflation continues, as the Chinese yuan is devalued, you could see interest rates continue to fall and you can see investors move more into U.S. stocks because of the dividend yields pushing up the value. And so it's unclear exactly what's going to happen. The one suggestion he had in terms of investing is, is what he calls productive assets. And the example is... A, a rental property, an apartment. And, and we've, we've talked about investing in real estate on money for the rest of us. I personally believe when you, when you have a, a potential huge event like this, a China debt crisis, and we don't know what the consequences are, that again, it goes back to the basics. Have multiple drivers of your portfolio in terms of asset classes, both public and and private, and have pockets of independence away from the financial system. System. So if you, you have gold, perhaps you own some land. Perhaps you're ambitious and want to own rental property. Perhaps you don't want to be hands-on with rental property, and you use one of the crowdfunding platforms to invest in an apartment building. I was looking at a, a crowdfunding opportunity to invest in an apartment. It was on Acquire Real Estate, and they had an apartment in Boston, that I, I was looking at. And so we want to have multiple drivers. We want to have some gold in our portfolio. Gold is a type of currency. If, if the Chinese yuan depreciates and, and fear spreads th- throughout the world, then gold potentially would appreciate. And more than anything, I'm being vigilant. So I'm willing to adjust my portfolio. If, if this event occurs or when it occurs, and the negative consequences become get so great that you have fear that I'm going to adjust my portfolio. And, and, and I, I do that by, by monitoring investment conditions. And one of the, the, the conditions that we look at, and I've talked about this in earlier episodes, is purchaser manager indices on the Money for the Rest of Us hub. We're looking at that monthly as part of the investment conditions report. You know, what percent of, of the countries around, around the world are showing positive increases in PMI? And, and what percent is showing an increase in over year over year? And what is the global PMI? And, and you can get all that data on, on market.com, or you can get it synthesized and summarized by becoming a member of the Money for the Rest of Us hub. And you get information on that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. But, but in conclusion, one of the videos on Real Vision TV was by the founder of, of, of Real Vision, one of the founders. Raul Paul. Now, he, he has Real Vision TV. He also writes a, an economic newsletter. And he did a video last month called The Importance of the Business Cycle. And he talked about his investment approach and what he uses as a hedge fund manager and what he uses now in his personal investments and what he shares on his newsletter. And you want to know the main thing that he looks at to figure out what's going to happen? He looks at PMI data. He looks at the, in his case, the, the ISM which is a, a U.S. provider of PMI data or, or survey-type data. And, and that's what he uses to make decisions. And I thought that was very gratifying because that's what I use too. And so that doesn't mean I'm as smart as a hedge fund manager, but, but certainly I think it, it is a proven approach to be able to monitor investment conditions so you can make adjustments as, as these things happen because, again, the timing is uncertain. So that is episode 116, Why You Can't Ignore China. Again, you can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.net. If you want to sign up for that free trial on Real Vision TV, that's realvisiontv.com forward slash money. And if you're interested in getting some additional guidance in terms of your asset allocation tools, get a better understanding of PMI data, you can get that information at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.